Peace be with you. Um, I, I want to just mention uh, two quick things, kind of follow-up. Uh, one's a follow-up comment. Um, serving with sojourn, sojourn students and sojourn kids. Uh, maybe you've uh, heard, heard this stat on your own, or maybe you've heard it here, because I've referenced it a, f- a number of different times. Uh, but there, there's a, a, a lady named Kara Powell, and she is uh, connected to, I think, Fuller Seminary out in California. And um, one, one of the, she, she oversees this project that's trying to help churches figure out how to grow young. And one of her colleagues was doing an interview, and, uh, he, and he, in this interview, he said, you know, there's a rule of thumb in churches, and the rule of thumb is that you need one youth leader for every five kids. And, uh, and that's kind of like the crowd control plan. You need one, one youth leader for every five kids. He said, our research shows that that number needs to be inverted, that you need five adults for every one kid. And he was being serious. And what he was suggesting was this, not that when you have sojourn kids or sojourn students that we literally need five adults in the room for every one teenager that shows up. But what they're suggesting is that a teenager needs to have five Christians in their life, five adult Christians in their life who don't just know their name, but who have actually invested in them, who've spent time with them, who, who know a little bit about their story, who are actually uh, kind of a, a resource for them as they try to navigate the world. And they said their research shows that those, those uh, teenagers who have five Christian adults in their life or more, uh, they, uh, the steadfastness of their, fi- of their faith is remarkable. And when I think about our church, it's like, man, I absolutely think that you should serve in Sojourn Kids, and I absolutely think that you should serve in Sojourn Students. If, if, that, if you got margin for that, and that, that's a passion of yours, we need help there, and I invite you to do it. Um, but I want you to also know that we are brainstorming and dreaming about ways as a congregation that we can figure out how you can, just, you can actually be involved in the life of our church from, from, uh, from cradle to grave, all, all the way down and all the way up, and so that we actually can know teenagers and no kids. And you know, one of the greatest joys of my life is that I have four daughters and it's kind of an embarrassment of riches. You know, if I count the number of women that uh, all all of my uh, children are girls, uh, if I count the number of women that have invested in my daughter's life, it's way more than five. It's it's incredible. And my wife and I do not take that for granted. We are so thrilled with the fact that God has has bubbled up from this church women that that care about our kids. And I know that there's other families in this church that would say the same. Uh, But we need to mobilize. If if we're going to care about the next generation, if we're going to care about the teens and the children among us, uh, then that, that, guess what? It takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of love. It takes some attention. Uh, it actually means maybe a few less Netflix episodes a week and a few more hours uh, with, with people uh, who, who need somebody who actually will listen to them and care for them and be part of their life. And so please sign up. That's a great on-ramp to get to know uh, teenagers and children. Um, but man, we, we have dreams of uh, figuring out how to uh, engage this congregation relationally uh, in, in really sweet ways. So pray for us and, and please uh, step out and, and serve. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is the Hydloff family. Uh, a lot of you know this, but um, uh, Jeff and Kate are in the process of adopting from Liberia. Uh, they got legal, uh, all the legal paperwork was filed a couple weeks ago, and they are legally, uh, this little girl, her name's Ellie, they are legally Ellie's parents, but on Tuesday of this past week, uh, they got notice that uh, the U.S. Embassy in Liberia has declined their application. Uh, they have sent paperwork to the U.S. Embassy in Washington, uh, in, in, in Washington, to uh, actually to revoke 
the entire adoption. And so it's, an, it's, it's, it's tragic, it's complicated, uh, it's confusing, it's all of these things. And so please pray uh, for, for the Hydeloff family. Uh, they are reaching out to government officials and they, uh, there's been some news stories, uh, one in Detroit um, that, that was uh, airing, one in the Detroit newspaper um, to try to get some, some press and some publicity for, for this, this situation. And so please pray. Kate is still in Liberia and they have been, they've, they've been given the indication that it's going to be months. Um, and so uh, Kate is a teacher at, at Trevor City West High School. Uh, Jeff is here with their two biological children. Uh, so just all kinds of complexities that are facing the Hydeloff family. And so if you knew that, thank you for those of you who've prayed and, and been, been reaching out. And if you didn't know that, please join us in the process of, of praying for God's, uh, God's care and, and protection over Ellie and uh, the, for the paperwork to not be revoked, but to actually get approved. Okay, we are in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and today we are moving further into chapter five, and we are going to hop right into it. Um, as you hear the verses that were just read a moment ago, verses 21 through 26 of Matthew chapter five, um, I, I wanna just wade right in because it'll give us a chance to reflect on where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but what is Jesus addressing in Matthew chapter five, verses 21 through 26. He starts off by saying, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. Now, last week, as we started the meat of the Sermon on the Mount, I shared that there were some skeptics about who Jesus was and what he was teaching, especially in regard to the Old Testament. Uh, there was, they, were, they were wondering, you know, I mean, he talks about the Old Testament a lot. He talks about Torah. He talks about the, you know, the Hebrew Bible. He talks about that a lot, but is he, is he fully committed to it? Because he's talking about it in ways that sometimes confuse us, ways that we've never heard before. You know, when they looked at the, when the public looked at the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew that the scribes and the Pharisees were fully invested in the 613 laws of the, of the Hebrew Bible. They knew it. It was crystal clear. But then they heard Jesus talk and they're like, wait, 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 is he affirming it or is he getting rid of it? What, 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 what is he doing? And Jesus starts off the meat of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 17. And he says to them, look, I did not come to get rid of the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. So I didn't come to get rid of it. I didn't come to just show up and give it a thumbs up and be like, yeah, Old Testament. I came to say, yes, Old Testament, but guess what? It's all pointing towards something. And I'm gonna show you the Old Testament with a, with a whole uh, new set of lights. I'm turning the lights up and I'm gonna reveal to you that this whole Old, Old Testament was actually pointing forward to himself, to, to, to Jesus. And so there's, there's this skepticism, but Jesus is, is working to clarify it in this opening part of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he tells them in verse 20 that as, 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 as good as the scribes and the Pharisees are at obeying those laws, you're going to have to have a greater righteousness. You're going to have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which that sounds intimidating. They were so committed to these 613 laws. And yet Jesus looks at, the, looks at his followers and says, your righteousness is going to have to be better than that. It's going to have to be greater than that. It's going to have to exceed that. And what, what did Jesus mean? What, what Jesus meant was that the righteousness that Jesus is looking for is a whole person righteousness. It's, it's both external and internal uh, the, the, the average scribe and Pharisee, they were, had great, great intentions for these external laws, this, what they did. But Jesus is saying that I'm asking for a whole person righteousness from the inside out. 
And you quickly begin to realize like, oh, this is a little bit of a problem. I I can do a lot of good things, but boy, the inside, the internal, that's complicated. That's tough stuff to navigate. And yet that's what Jesus is asking. Jesus' own life, his death, his resurrection, the, the soon coming renewal of the world, that's the ultimate end to which the Old Testament is pointing. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts to show some specific ways he is bringing fresh light to the Old Testament. So look again at verse 21, and you'll see that Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Now, when Jesus talks about the Old Testament, he usually says, it is written. But he doesn't say, it is written here. He says, you've heard it said. And what you've heard is this idea that you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. And so that's what he's referring to is not necessarily the written scriptures as much as he's referring to the scribes and the Pharisees teaching on the scriptures. And so what Jesus is pointing out is that the religious leaders were convinced that they had kept the law by their interpretation of the law. That as they looked at the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament and the laws that Moses and others wrote down, they looked at those laws and then by their interpretation, by what they said, they had kept the law. Because, for example, they hadn't murdered anyone. So commandment number six, check. I've, I've kept that law. I have not murdered anyone. And Jesus has a number of interactions like this, and and we'll see more here in the Sermon on the Mount. Not just about murder, um, uh, not about murder, but specifically the sense that these individual Jews, they actually really thought they had kept the law. Not, Not just, you know, okay, I mean, probably the majority of human beings who live in this culture right now could say, I have not committed murder. Um, but the, the Jewish people, like the committed Jews, they really thought that they had kept the law. Jesus has an interaction later on in the Gospel of Matthew with who is referred to as the rich young ruler. And he says, well, you know, he comes to Jesus with these questions like, how do I be a righteous guy? And Jesus starts listing off the laws. And the rich, the rich young ruler says, I've kept all of them. And some people present him as being this arrogant, how dare you say that? He, I don't think he was being arrogant. I think he's literally saying, I checked, I checked every one of those boxes. I really have done it. It was possible to keep the law based on the way that they were interpreting it. And so Jesus has plenty of interactions like this. But Jesus is revealing that they are not going deep enough. And by extension, Jesus is inviting us to realize that we usually don't go deep enough. Jesus just said we need a greater righteousness. We need a whole person righteousness, a righteousness that comes from the inside out. Jesus is telling them, uh, he is saying that the problem of sin is not just in the stuff you can see. So he says, you've heard it said that it was uh, of of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus takes it from this physical act of murder where there's a human being who's lost their life and Jesus takes it all the way to the interior. Jesus takes it to the heart. He talks about just getting angry. The problem of sin is not just in the stuff you can see. 
Jesus is, is suggesting that murder is the ultimate and tragic fruit of a very, very poisonous root, a root that God calls us to turn from. Jesus is affirming murder is wrong, but don't miss that murder is the offspring of sinful anger. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, yeah, yeah, don't, don't murder someone. That's a good plan. Don't do that. But don't miss where that murder comes from. That murder is bubbling up out of you. That murder is actually coming from your own heart. It starts with the anger in your own heart. Sin may culminate in murder, but the sin showed up way, way, way sooner. We say this sometimes when we talk about the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. But before they ever ate the piece of fruit, what they actually had fundamentally done was they had turned their trust from trusting God to actually trusting themselves. Instead of trusting the direction that God had given to them, they trusted themselves. And once they trusted themselves, then all of a sudden, a good-looking piece of fruit made sense to them. You see, the, the sin happened before the bite happened. And Jesus is saying that murder is wrong and murder is contrary to God's good design. Murder is missing God's good way of life. But it's actually the sin started way before the murder happened. Jesus is showing us the bad fruit of anger. But then he says there's actually some steps along the way. He references insults and he references murder. And so you can see anger from the heart, Insult with the mouth, murder with the hands, and everything in between. Everything in between. Murder, the hands, we all agree that is wrong. I think we also would agree that attacking your neighbor and strangling them within an inch of their life but then stopping wouldn't be okay either. Yeah, I didn't kill him. He didn't die. Well, that, that, that kind of violence, physical violence with your hands falls under this same exact umbrella. And then your mouth. Jesus says that that's actually a form of murder too. The words that are spoken, and in our culture, words that are typed. The attack of the mouth. Je Jesus, the way he talks about this is actually quite confusing. It keeps a lot of scholars guessing on what Jesus exactly means in verses uh, 20, uh, 22 and 23. Um, or in verse 22, when he talks about the word, uh, if, you, if you say you fool, uh, there's a Hebrew word that's then translated into a Greek word, and there's a lot of confusion as to what that Hebrew word means and what that Greek word means. Um, for example, uh, Jesus calls his disciples fools. Jesus calls the Pharisees fools. And so there, there's a, John Stott, the, the, the great Anglican, he, you know, he, he weighs in on this, and he says it is clear that there's more going on with this word probably in their culture than, than comes through to us, that it had taken on potentially religious and moral overtones that we're not quite grasping. But a way to think about it would be this. What Jesus is saying is, is uh, under this same umbrella of murder is using your words to murder a person, to murder their reputation, to murder their self-worth, to, 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 to ridicule them with your mouth, to treat them in a way that is unfair, that is ruthless and, and harsh. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
There's this recognition that the way that we use our mouth, that the, the, the abuse that we can give to another person. Um, there, there's a story about a, an older couple that were wrestling through this reality of the, the sin of anger and the sin of shouting and the sin of yelling at each other and losing their temper. And as they were going through counseling, the, the wife realized that she was the one who was the typical one to, to blow up. You know, some people get angry and they go internal. Other people get angry and they go external. Well, in this marriage, it was the wife who would blow up at her husband and she's realizing that it's been decades and decades that she's been blowing up at her husband. And her husband says, that, yeah, it, it, it's all right. She's like, yeah, but how do, you, how do you deal with it? He says, every time you do it, I just, I just go and I, I clean the toilet. And she's like, you, you, go, that you go and clean the toilet, that, that makes you feel better? He's like, yeah, because I use your toothbrush. But, 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 you know, like, listen, the, the concept of, of your words and the attacking of your words and the anger of your words is not something that should just be dealt with with a, oh, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Jesus is actually saying that your treatment of another person who is made in the image of God, when you come at them with harsh language, when you make accusations against them, and whatever the additional components are of the language that Jesus is pointing to in verse 22, Jesus says, watch out because you'll be liable of hellfire eventually. What one commentator says that this Greek and Hebrew word are actually related to the idea of calling someone an apostate. And, and, and this commentator says that it's, it would be like this. Jesus is saying, if you have the audacity to say to someone else that they are rejected by God, you are now in danger of that same rejection. Watch out what you do with your mouth. Jesus says that is the sin of murder too. And he doesn't stop with the mouth. He goes all the way to the heart. So the violence of our hands, the violence of our mouth, they both flow from the anger that is found in our hearts. Boy, we like to excuse our anger. We like to come up with reasons for why we're angry. But one of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, you know, he has this little illustration where, uh, and we've seen him do it. He, we, we, he was in Traverse City a few years ago. But he takes a water bottle, and he's standing on stage, and he shakes the water bottle, and there's water all over the stage. And then he says, why is there water all over the stage? And then he actually wants people to interact with him. And someone says, because you shook the bottle. And Paul Tripp says, well, that's not quite true because if there, wasn't, if there was orange juice in the bottle, there would be orange juice on the floor. Why is there water on the floor? And the reason there's water on the floor is because water is what was in the bottle. And when the bottle got shook, what was in the bottle came out. And so when we lose our temper or we lose, our, you know, lose, our, lose control, we want to excuse ourselves. But the invitation from Jesus is to actually say, that bubbled out of your heart. Why did you blow up at that person? Because that's what was going on in your heart. If your heart was full of peace, guess what would have happened when you got jostled? Peace would have spilled out of you. But instead it was anger. And Jesus is drawing a pretty, he's making a pretty big umbrella. He's saying, the interpretation that you've lived with is just don't kill someone. I'm telling you, it's not just killing, it's any form of violence. It's violence with your hands, it's violence with your mouth, and the thing you should be most concerned about 
is the violence that's bubbling up from your own heart. That's what Jesus is pointing to. Well, what are we to do? Well, Jesus wants us to stop letting sinful anger rule our hearts, our mouths, and our hands. Jesus wants us to see sinful anger and all of its anger, all of anger's fruit for what it is, to recognize that it's contrary to the life that Jesus is inviting his followers to live. Now, before we go further, just two quick caveats. One, there is a difference between righteous and unrighteous, or righteous and sinful anger. Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets angry uh, to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3. He gets angry at the money changers in the temple, John chapter 2. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says, be angry and sin not. Or some versions say, in your anger, do not sin. So, So the Bible is telling us that anger itself is not sin. But, and my guess is that you've experienced this, the line between righteous anger and sinful anger is so thin. Is it not so thin? Do do any of you have children? The line between righteous anger and sinful anger is so thin. You could start off with righteous anger and in seconds find yourself in sinful anger. What I'm trying to say is that to never get angry is not the point. There is righteous anger And there's all kinds of examples where God's law and God's way is being violated and the people of God should rise up with with, uh, righteous anger to see an end to that activity. So to never get angry is not the point, but to get angry about the right things is the point. To not get angry about the wrong things. Jesus is talking about sinful anger. Secondly, um, your heart your mouth, um, your hands. And I I just want to say this out loud. I'm sure many of you can realize this. Do do they all have the same ripple effect? The the answer is no. You know, if you think about a sin as as a rock that you throw into a lake, not, not every sin has the same ripple effect. Every sin is an offense to God. Every sin is, is evidence of my heart being, being broken and running contrary to God. But sin does have different ripple effects. If, if, you, if you get angry at someone in your heart, you're probably not going to spend your, your life in, in, in prison. If you murder someone with your hands, you probably will spend your life in prison. The, the, the ripple effect of sin, the way that your sin affects other people can change dramatically. But what can happen for us is we can actually base the, the, the severity of the sin on the ripple effect. And so we can come to the conclusion that if I can just keep it all bottled in, or if I can live this way and no one else gets hurt, that somehow this isn't a serious problem. And Jesus is saying, I totally get that the ripple effect is different that the impact on your family or the impact on your freedom or the impact on other people, of, of course those things vary. But Jesus is saying, do not miss that sin is toxic and sin will ruin you and sin infects your heart and sin separates you from God. And so yes, the ripple effect is different, but the invitation from Jesus is to see that sin is tragic now, just on a practical note, one of the things that I've said to my family, uh, to my children for, for years, is that part of the journey, I think, of demonstrating your maturity is learning how to hit the brakes sooner. 
How do you hit the brakes sooner? If you think of your heart and then your mouth and then your hands, I'm not saying it always flows in that direction, but what if part of the journey of growing in Jesus is that you start hitting the brakes sooner? So, for example, with my children, you know, they get upset and they scream in the kitchen and they stomp down the hallway and they slam the door and they go in their bedroom and if I don't come bursting in there after them, you know, they, they, they stay in there for four or five hours and then they come out and they're like, mom and dad, that was wrong. I lost my temper. I shouldn't have yelled. I shouldn't have stomped down the hall. I shouldn't have slammed the door. Well, well what if the next time they actually scream in the kitchen, yell, stomp down the hallway, go in their bedroom, slam the door, and five minutes later, they come back out and they recognize that what they did was dishonoring to their parents. Well, what if the next time they would actually stop themselves in the hallway and not get all the way to their bedroom before they realize that this behavior is contrary to God's good design for their life? And obviously, if they got to the place to where in the middle of the actual conflict itself, they could begin to control their mouth. And then by God's grace, eventually have a heart that is more full of peace than anger, that is more ready to receive instruction than it is to rebel against it. Uh, this is not just a journey for a teenager. This is a journey for every one of us to recognize as we look at God's good design for our lives, his grace and his kindness, his readiness to forgive us means that no matter how far you've gone down that path, the invitation is to turn around. But as you mature in Jesus, you turn around sooner. And so if, if you're getting beat up by pornography on your computer, just think about those steps and like, what would it look like to hit the brakes sooner? What would it look like to, to repent sooner? What would it look like to not even go to that website be, you know, before you go there? What would it look like to, to have some accountability before you even get on your computer? They, they, these are ways in which you, 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 you help uh, move this, this, this journey of, of addressing the brokenness of your heart and trusting Jesus. So yeah, not every sin has the same rep, ripple effect, but every sin is toxic. Every sin does bring separation. Every sin does harm your heart. And Jesus is inviting you to see it and to turn from it. So, having said that, Jesus is saying, stop letting sinful anger rule your life. Why? In James chapter 1, James says this, human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Or some versions say, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is saying, listen, you, you know, I, we, I get it. I, I, man, this world is messed up. People do things to you, you get cut off in traffic, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I know you get angry, but do you recognize that that's not producing what you think it's producing? That's not producing the righteousness, the whole person righteousness that God desires from you? Throughout the entire New Testament, we are called time and time again to live lives of joy and love and gentleness and peace and patience and kindness we refer to these things as the fruit of the Spirit. And the New Testament is saying, hey, hey, child of God, like that's what God is forming you into. And so one of the reasons why Jesus says, don't let sinful anger rule your life is because the fruit of the Spirit is working in another direction. The fruit of the Spirit, what, G what the Spirit wants to do in you is actually opposite of that. And so, so, so don't let it rule your life. Another reason is that Jesus didn't. Th think about Jesus' own life. 
And you think of the, 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 the times in which, boy, it would be so easy to lose it. But instead, what do we see from him? We see that he had compassion on the very people who were abusing him. We have these accounts of him being physically beaten, unfairly, unjustly, having gone through a kangaroo court, being railroaded, and then being hung on a cross. And as he hung on that cross, the very people that are abusing him, that that are going to kill him, he looks upon them with compassion. Now, you, you might say, okay, well, that sounds really good, but how am I supposed to do that? Like, I'm not Jesus, if you don't know. Like, that, I, I'm, I'm not Jesus. Of course Jesus could do that, but I can't do that. Well, well here, here's what the scriptures actually offer us. Here's how we can do it. If we realize that we are not just observers of Jesus' kindness, but that we are actually receivers of Jesus' kindness. You see, Jesus is a model, for sure, but he is so much more than a model. He is a savior, he is a rescuer. Do, do you know that the Bible says that you and I were, were both once enemies of God? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Do you, do you know that when the, when the Bible tells us that Jesus looked down on those who were crucifying him, when he looked down on those who were rejecting them, him and he loved them anyway, that he was looking at you? that you're one of the enemies, you're one of the people that was rejecting him, that as Jesus hung on the cross, he was looking at the entire reality of his salvific work, and he looked at humanity, and he loved it anyway. I'm in that crowd. You're in that crowd. Jesus was looking at us. In Romans chapter 2, we are told that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes this to Timothy, and he says, this saying is, is, is it's so worthy, it's so worthy of consideration that Christ Jesus died for sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But you want to know why? You can look it up. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 through 17. He says, but, but Jesus did it, save me for this reason, that he might display his perfect patience. Why did Jesus save me? Not to show off Matt Heron as some great trophy, he, he saved me to show the world that he'll put up with me, that he'll have patience on a guy like me, that he'll pour his kindness out on a guy like me. And if I look at Jesus and I only see him as a model, then yeah, I'm overwhelmed. How in the world am I supposed to not be angry? How in the world am I supposed to pull it together? How in the world am I not supposed to use my words like that? We're hopeless. But what if we're not just observers, we're receivers too? And that when we realize our need for Jesus, when we receive the forgiveness that God gives through Jesus, that we in that moment get all the resources that we need to go pursue reconciliation with other people. That when God reconciles with us, all of a sudden we realize we've now been given the ability to forgive others. Jesus gives a parable to this end. He says there's a guy who had a terrible, terrible debt and he's going to be punished severely for it. And the guy who he owes this huge debt to says, you know what? I'm going to forgive you. It's an, it's an unthinkable amount of money that he has forgiven. And this guy leaves, and he goes down the street, and he goes and he beats up a guy who owes him $10. And Jesus says, you don't get the gospel. You don't understand what's happened to you. You have been forgiven an unthinkable amount, and you can't forgive that? 
So the moment we, re- we receive the gospel, the moment we, the, 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 we actually understand the realities of the gospel, we are given the resources to forgive. But you know what Jesus is pointing us to here? That we are also given the resources to ask for forgiveness. So it's not just, oh man, Jesus has forgiven me and I can go forgive others. You bet you it's that. You, you bet you it's that. And if there's someone who's wronged you and comes to you and asks for forgiveness and you can't forgive them, there's something about the gospel that you're missing. But Jesus wants to invite us right now in this passage to realize that it's not only giving forgiveness, it's the resources to go ask for it. Jesus wants us to restore relationships that have been damaged, damaged by sinful anger. But there's no reason to limit this invitation to only anger-induced damage. Jesus wants us to restore the relationships that have been damaged. Did, Did you notice those verses? Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Then Jesus gives a a little example in verses 25 through 26 about being sued. And he, he, he says there should be urgency to this. Here's an example. If you're being sued, you might as well figure out how to, how to own what you need to own and make it right because you could end up in prison for a really, really long time. Verses 25 and 26 are an example of this. But the heart of this is verses 23 and 24, where he says, if you are at the altar with your gift and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there and go and be reconciled. First reconcile with your brother or your sister and then come back to worship. It's what Jesus offers. It's what Jesus calls us to, to have a level of urgency. Jesus wants reconciliation from our anger, because we've received reconciliation from him. And if we recognize that God can put up with me, that I, I needed to ask God for forgiveness, then I shouldn't be surprised that I, there's people in my life that I need to ask forgiveness. If I've had to go to God and say, God, I've wronged you, it's not surprising to me that I've got people in my life that I need to go to and say, I've wronged you. And if that's true, Jesus says there should be an urgency to this. So much so that you should leave worship and go deal with it. So that's what we're going to do. These verses, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says if someone has something against you, you should deal with it ASAP. Now Jesus says that if they have something against you, which means that you've wronged them, but I don't think that this ignores the wrongs that have been done to you. Jesus is just prioritizing the fact that if you're the one who's done the wrong, you should absolutely be the one initiating the reconciliation. So what does reconciliation involve? Well, it involves confession. And the way I like to talk about confession, I think this is a biblical way to think about it. Confession is taking full ownership that what you did was wrong and that you did indeed do it. That you were the one who did it and what you did was wrong. If you try to say you're sorry to someone and those, those two things are not there, that you did it and what you did was wrong, it's not confession. You're, 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 you're letting yourself off the hook. You're trying to excuse it. You're trying to minimize it. True confession is what I did was wrong and I'm the one who did it. The other thing that reconciliation involves is repentance. And repentance is the word, it has the idea of turning. 
And I think a biblical sense of repentance is to turn from that way of life, which is ultimately trusting yourself and doing what you want, and then turning to God. It's not just stop doing bad things and start doing good things. It's turning from trusting you to actually trusting God, that his way is good, is, is, is the fruit of that. But you turn from trusting yourself to actually trusting God. So confession and repentance. Now you can't control what comes next. You can't control if the person that you confess to receives what you say. You, you, that part is out of your hands. But you don't do this because it's a math formula that works every time. Over the years, Lou Damiani has worked with me in multiple relationships that I've had to do this with. And there's been times where I think I've actually said to Lou, they're never going to receive that. I'll go say that and they'll use it to beat me over the head. And Lou's like, we don't do it because of the outcome. We do it because it's the right thing to do. We do it for the good of our own souls. We do it because this is a healthy life. And by God's grace, they receive our attempt to ask for forgiveness. But we can't guarantee it. But brothers and sisters, this is an aspect of greater righteousness that Jesus is calling us to throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this kind of reconciling spirit is a core piece of a flourishing life? Well, Jesus says, leave your gift. So I don't want to ignore it, and we're going to give you some time right now. My, my guess is that for a lot of us in this room, there's a specific name that's come to mind. Someone in your life that you have, you have wronged, and they have something against you. So a few pieces of advice. We're going to give you four or five minutes. It's going to be just some music playing, and then I will come up and invite us into communion after that. But here's some, some tips during this time. First of all, 